This episode of Residence contains coarse language and some sexual and drug references. Listener discretion is advised. This is the second of a two-part episode. If you missed the first episode of Nathan's story, I recommend going back and listening to it before this one. She's trying to make you a drug meal. She's trying to get drugs into Australia and she's using the pig. You're going to get... You're going you're gonna to find people at the airport, they're going to target you, they're going to pick you up, and she's going to use you to get drugs into the country. Anyone who's ever relocated to another country is familiar with the range of emotions that can come with it, from anticipation, excitement, and fun, to disappointment, stress, heartache, and sometimes even trauma. Shut up, this is ridiculous. She's obviously not doing that. She just gave me a toy pig. And we check the pig, and there's like a normal machine stitching, on all the way around the pig and then just under the arse there's some hand stitches that are really obvious and we're like oh god this podcast it explores the question what is home is it just a place of residence or something more than that welcome to the residence podcast So in my, in my third year, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Some of my friends were going into, oh, just, just looking into internships that they could get. And I was like, some people go to uni and they know what they want. I, was, I just went to uni because, you know, like I said, I was just getting out. I was just surviving. And then I got my degree and I was like, okay, that's done. Education, done. I've got the groundwork. Now what the hell am I going to do? I've got no idea. I started auditioning for, for drama school because I was really into acting at this point, you know, to do a master's in acting. But then on Christmas Eve, or New Christmas Eve, I was out in the pub in Stoke-on-Trent with my stepdad and we were a few parts down and his friend comes, who I've never met before and I haven't met since. He started talking to me about the different places that he lived in the world and he started talking about how he lived in Sydney with his best mates and... It's just a time that he looks back to as one of the best times in his life. You can get this. There's millions of cities to live in all over the world. Like, this is an endless opportunity. This is what I need to be doing. Right now, I'm 21. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a job. Now is the time. I have no responsibility to anything. And so I went back to my flat and said, guys, I've, I've thought of something amazing. Why don't we just all go to Australia? And they all went... No. <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? We're not doing that. We're going, like, why would you go to Australia? And I was like, why wouldn't you go to Australia? There's not, we've got nothing tying us back here. Let's just go now. When else are you going to do something like that? I don't want to do something like that. We need to get a job. And I was like, oh, well, I'm getting nowhere. Carlos, you'll come with me to Australia. No, no, I won't. I won't. You're not, and you're not really going to go either, are you? And I was like, fuck. Maybe I'm not. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. So yeah, I decide that I'm just going to go to Australia instead of go to drama school. I just get it in my head there, like, you're not going to do it. I get a girlfriend and I hang around in, in Bristol for a while doing some bar work. I get a Veruca on my foot, actually. And, and then I say, oh, everyone, I can't go because I've got a really bad Veruca on my foot. 
And then I said to everyone, like, I've got this Veruca on my foot. And so I have to stay in England. And they're like, oh, like, you're, you're just having us on. You're not going to go, you know. Stop pretending like you're going to go. You're, you're pretending like you've got this Veruca on your foot. Like, why is that stopping you from going? It really did. And, um, but yeah, uh, the Veruca healed. <laughs> and, and I just booked my ticket to, to Thailand first, to stop over in Thailand. I, apart from this guy it, that I met in the pub, I, I didn't have any friends that were going to go, that had been away before properly, that had lived away. I'd, I'd had some friends that had done some Southeast Asia stuff or whatever, travelled here and there, but that's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about living somewhere. I didn't have anybody that had done that, no, no close friends or family. So when I went to Thailand, um, I got there and I actually had my backpack and then because I didn't know what the hell was going to happen to me in Australia, I bought a, a suitcase as well, like a wheelie suitcase, um, which had a couple of books in, including one on chess. And I, um, I brought a teacup, a two teacups, even a pair of slippers. <laughs> what a terrible way to travel, you know, I just had no idea. And, and I bought a hundred tea bags from the UK just because just in case they didn't have any tea in Thailand or Australia. I bought tons of paracetamol and ibuprofen because it's not like you find that anywhere else in the world apart from England, you know? <laughs> Meeting colourful characters is a massive part of going on an overseas adventure. And Nathan was about to meet his first. And she would make quite the impression. So I have this suitcase, which is very hard for me to travel around Thailand with. And I make friends with the, the lady, one of the ladies who runs the hostel called Naughty Natty, who was a lady boy. And she had, she had like Naughty Natty tattooed on her, on her bicep there in like really fancy writing. And she was wearing mini skirts and stuff. And didn't, you, didn't something happen with her? Yeah, well, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, so I became really good friends with her, you know, and, but I, I wasn't really into it. I wasn't really into, I'm not part of the culture of like, you know, just going in and, and sleeping with someone just because they're a lady boy. But she was a, a little bit interested in me and Hey, I love, I love to flirt generally so I was not adverse to that kind of conversation and you know it's just playful it's just banter and she sorted out my my Thai telephone a sim card she actually paid for it um because I didn't I didn't have one and I didn't really know what to do um so she helped me get my phone and she let me keep my suitcase in her house whilst I took a plane so I didn't have to pay for the extra luggage because I mean let's be honest I didn't need another suitcase in Thailand obviously um, but then the kind of price that I paid for this was that throughout the whole adventure, she was, te she had my Thai number, so she knew how to text and call me. And every day she would, she would be texting me, hello, Nathan, how are you? Missing your, missing your, and she spelled your with, with an R, you, you, Y-O-U-R. Missing your, Nathan, do you miss me? <laughs> hello, are you with your friends? Good morning, Nathan. <laughs> every every day and we might laugh now you know it's not but it's not cruel it was getting quite intense because she had my suitcase with my laptop in and I thought fuck she's gonna burn my stuff if I say leave me alone so I better be nice to the girl you know but it was getting a bit much like she probably developed some feelings I just couldn't tell her that those feelings weren't reciprocated while she was in possession of my items um she, we went to a gay club before we left Thailand just because I'd heard it was good, you know, and she, and I made a move on a different girl that really upset her. We had a big falling out before I left Thailand and 
she got a bit nutty with me and then wanted to sleep in my bed. I was in quite deep. I was in over my head. I had no idea what I got myself into. So I go back. <laughs> so this is in the north of Thailand. Then I get a plane back into Bangkok and, um, and I meet Naughty Natty again just to collect my suitcase. And I decide, okay, fuck this. I can't be dealing with this anymore. I'm just going to put the suitcase in baggage storage in the airport. So I get my suitcase from her. It's like an eight-hour stopover flight from Bangkok down into the south because I, I get on really well with the group I'm traveling with. I decide I'm going to stay with them for a month now. And I go back to see her to get my suitcase. It's been my birthday since I've been up north. And, she, and I get a taxi to the Bangkok hostel. We meet at like midnight and then I need to get back to the airport because my plane out is only in like three or four hours. So time is really of the essence. Then I'm going and I'm kind of like, okay, I need my suitcase. And she's kind of like, oh, Nathan, I miss you so much. Would you like to sit down and chat with me? And she got a, a cuddly toy pig for my birthday. And she gave me the pig as a birthday present with a card. And I said, thank you very much. And she started kissing me on the cheek. And then she was like kissing me close to my lips. And I was like, ah, I, you know, I've really, really got to go. I'd actually told the taxi driver to wait outside. And, and if I didn't come back out in 10 minutes, then come and get me because I wasn't really sure what was going to go down in the hostel. Um, but she actually ended up giving me this cuddly toy pig. I managed to get away. But then I ring my mom and tell her about the whole ordeal, <laughs> the situation. And classic my mom. I, I just told it to her as a bit of a joke, you know, that I've got this cuddly toy pig that I'm riding around Thailand with now. And she goes, Nathan, she's trying to make you a drug mule. She's trying to get drugs into Australia and she's using the pig. You're going to get, you're going to, you're going to find people at the airport. They're going to target you. They're going to pick you up and she's going to use you to get drugs into the country. Mom, shut up. This is ridiculous. She's obviously not doing that. She just gave me a toy pig. And then we check the pig and there's like a normal machine stitching on all the way around the pig. And then just under the arse, there's some hand stitches that are really obvious. And we're like, oh God, you know, maybe... <laughs> we laughed at my mum, but is she right? So we had a ceremony where we cut open the pig. Um, we didn't actually find anything, you know, if we just cut open the pig. from uh, That would have really been a great story. Like, what the hell do you do if you find drugs in a, in a pig? Which... which naughty natty gives you i don't know i wouldn't know if we'd take if we would take them bury them hand it into the police i have no idea what to do with that in that situation this next part of the story is something a lot of people can relate to myself included the low after the high of initially landing somewhere new you may have gone out a bit partied spent a bit of money but eventually you come to the realization that you can't live this way the entire time you're abroad or most of us can't anyway. And sometimes, when you slowly start to arrive at this point, you wonder if your experience is going to be what you thought it was. I got to Sydney, and the first lesson that I learned was that life was a lot harder than you, than you thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, it's difficult to get a job, and it's difficult to get a life. You have to work on it. Yeah, I, I think Sydney was very lonely for me. And I realised that this is going to be a lot more difficult. I was going to say than I expected or than I thought it was going to be, but I really just didn't think about what it was going to be. It just was difficult. This is actually difficult. What made it difficult? Made it difficult because people wouldn't, ex wouldn't just take me on. I just thought, you know, you could just find a job. That's easy. 
but you couldn't just find a job you had to get rsa to serve alcohol and then you had to do trials and you had to be pretty good to get jobs you had to be really on it take what you could get scavenge for for jobs here and there i i did some cool gigs like um bartending in the city for private lawyers who were doing their fine leaving party and stuff i worked for a little bar i worked for the imperial bar which is the big drag bar in sydney uh, which was kind of good but then i i it was just the hours were so unsociable you you really have to bar bartenders are friends with bartenders because you can't be friends with anybody else on that kind of schedule the money was pretty shit the hours were shit like you were working when you could meet other people friday saturday nights bank holidays that's when everybody else meets each other but your work that's the nights where you're working so it makes it even more hard to find people that you really connect with just like uni was a learning process of how to how to build routine how to how to find people that you really want to connect with and to trust those people rather than anybody this was another thing okay i understand that about life now and so i was like okay this isn't for me so i'm gonna pack it up here because i know that it's gonna take a while to settle myself if i decide to stay so nathan decided to travel to vietnam with some friends he'd met in thailand he got a motorbike and rode around the countryside trying to block out his initial negative impression of sydney and australia but eventually as always he returned unable to walk away from the challenge and as usual the challenges came thick and fast and then i went back to australia to give it a second go this time i decided that i was going to go uh to the farms to pick fruit because i knew that lots of travelers pick fruit so you can meet people it's easy money because there's lots of fruit picking to be done to be done but this process of like naively going about my traveling situation and working things on the road became even more obvious when i decided to go fruit picking and my time in perth so i go over to perth and um i meet some guy on the on the first night just drinking in the hostel who says i've got a great hostel so come down to donnybrook um i'm like always having work whatever it's nice and i'm like okay no one else has got back to me but i kind of just chanced it i was just winging it and yeah that sounds good let's go next day i get down they get down there and yeah, so I'm in this hostel. It looks like it's all going to be good. Everyone's friendly to me at the start. The hostel owners are friendly. They're English, Lynn and Darren. It's a town called Donnybrook, which is about an hour's east south east southeast of Bunbury, which is about two and a half hours south of Perth. So we're really we're talking fucking Nowhereville, the capital of Nowhereville, which is no town. But Donnybrook was big on its apple farming. And that's what I first went into, apples and pears. They got me work pretty much straight away. And I felt like, okay, this is good. This is, you know, at least it's work, it's money. And I'm meeting people. There's some nice people here. But very quickly, the tide turned when, when the pears finished with my job. And then, um, and then the, and then, yeah, they, we finished picking the pears. And there wasn't any work for me for a little while. And then I was in the waiting queue. And in this queue, it felt horrible because you're waiting for your next job and you don't know, the hostel owners are telling you that there's going to be work 
but you don't know when there's going to be work. Like they're, they're saying, yes, it's we don't, we're not really sure, but we think there's going to be work next week. But you never really know whether they're telling the truth or not, because they have all the power. You're paying for their rent right now. You're paying, you're paying their rent. It was a very frustrating time, and there was a lot of time where I just woke up and I had nothing to do. There was nothing to do in the town. There was, and I was here because I was supposed to be doing some farm work to get some money or at least get my days on the visa so that you have to get 88 days of fruit picking to stay in Australia for a second year. There was nothing else to it. Like you, there was nothing else you could do in the town. It just really, that wasn't pleasant. So I just had to build a routine for myself. After a while, I'd got some work, but it just wasn't enough. The farmers would play you as well, you know. They would say that you're not picking hard enough, and you're like, you, you, you are picking hard enough. You're not picking as hard as this, as this guy, who's, you know, he's really trying, but I'm still working hard for you, and I'm picking it right. But they want you to be gentle with the fruit, but also work hard. And it's like, mate, I've not done this for my whole life. Can you, you're paying a slave labor rage, wages. Just have a little bit of of leeway like we're not going to be the best we're not going to be what you expect us to be who have seasoned fruit pickers and he'd and then they say okay boys there's no more work for you and then wednesday next week we get the call oh there is work for you and then on friday there's no more work because you're too lazy and then wednesday they want you to go back again you know they're just playing this game with you saying that you need to work harder and perhaps you'll have full-time work with us but really they don't want you to work full-time they've only got three days of work because they've got three days worth of harvest that they need picking and then next week there'll be different fruit that needs picking so everybody's playing a game with you nathan decided to give up fruit picking and go on a road trip with a group of irish guys he'd met whilst working on the farms they decided to travel to darwin where they hoped to find better working conditions and a change of scenery he was more eager than ever to make his own way. As up until this point, he'd been still accepting financial help from his parents when times became really tough. He wanted that to stop though, and the trip with the Irish boys to go find work would be the answer to that. However, after meeting these guys and deciding on the road trip, it was agreed that they would arrange the camper van. Only they hadn't done this, and in the end, finding a vehicle turned out to be practically impossible. So they all ended up stuck in Perth having to look for jobs. It was also around this time that Nathan started to hear the sound of familiar alarm bells ringing. Were these his people? Or was he getting sucked into another crowd that would take him further from the things he wanted to achieve? They're from a northern suburb of Dublin called Drahada. Um, so half of them are like Drahada boys and half of them are Dublin boys from northern suburbs of Dublin. And fucking hell they're quite hard to be honest there's six of them they got into perth <laughs> they spent three or four months in perth they didn't work they just spent all of the euros that they had going to australia they, did, they obviously did not know what they were up against and went to perth didn't really meet that many people just kind of bought an xbox and stayed in the flat and played there and then they they thought okay we'll go down to do some farm work they earned some money on the farms and then we were all going to go up to the trip one of the boys out of the six, one of the boys went home after Perth to see his girlfriend. Then the second one, he went home in the middle of the farms because they'd met an Asian girl on the farms and then he was going to go back home and then they were going to travel Europe together. Mark fell in love with one of the French girls and then they went to the Philippines together and went traveling together. So he was gone. So it was only three of them left. 
So this, this was the group. I was friends with Tom, with Thomas mainly. So we, so we know some guy who gets us work at this factory. But you can't drive around, you can't get around Perth unless you have a car really. Especially where we worked in the industrial suburbs where there's not that much transport to get there. I hadn't really thought about how I was going to get around or especially because Australia, West Australia is so vast compared to Eastern Australia or the Eastern Strip from Sydney to Melbourne. There's not many routes that you, that you travel to, you know. You need just to have your own self-sufficiently, you, you need a car. And, we, and then I spent the next three months in Perth working at a steel factory. But we built big metal units that were like ventilation units or sunscreen units, which are the, if you have big skyscrapers, you know, the big metal things that would shade you from the, shade you from the sun. This was the first time in my life, really, that I had a full-time job. Perth was difficult and this wasn't a pleasant job. We, were, we just spent the time uh, drilling holes in metal lifting metal from one place to another, screwing things in, working on a line, assembling these massive units, getting cuts all over my hands because we'd have to hold, hold the metal in place or you know, the drill would just snag your hand a little bit or the, or the screw. Um, so I'd have little cuts all over my hands. In Perth as well, we didn't really have any other friends apart from the guys that I was with. And again, it just became clear that that these weren't really people that I had that much in common with. On the farms, I, I ended up going with them because they were the closest thing that I could find to friends. But when we started living with each other, beyond the facade of just like having a laugh and, and joking about the same things and telling each other stories, we didn't really have that much in common. They were, as I said, they came from a rough part of Dublin big fish in small ponds from the town that they came from. It all came to a head at this point in Perth and, and we'd, be, we'd be going out and we'd be going out clubbing and just drinking. But then when they would drink, they would kind of just drink to be drunk and then they'd go out to whatever club was playing, whatever, just so that they could like have a look at some, you're going to get your hole. That's what they called the girls. They just called them hole. And I was like, fucking hell, this is, this is not what I'm used to, like in the liberal elite bloody university. You couldn't say that. <laughs> but yeah, we, they used to say, you know, you're going to get your hole. Um, who's your hole tonight? And, and you'd be like, fuck. Um, these guys would be big gym guys, you know, because that's what, they, that's what they did. You know, they were all about their image. They were all about just going out on town, being the boys, drinking, gym. But we're going out. So we're going out one night and I ended up going back with a girl. It's kind of funny because the boys actually set it up without me knowing. I was with her in the club and I was just like happy to kind of call it there. And then she knocks on our door and she comes in and I had no idea that she was going to come in. We were all sat down. It's like 4am. We're watching the FA Cup semi-final. And um, I'm like, okay, all right. All of the boys are giggling because, you know, this is just classic them, like lads being lads. They love this kind of stuff. They live for it. So obviously that happens. And then um, we say goodbye to her. And, and I'm like, okay, that's that. You know, I don't need to need any more of that in my life, to be honest. Later on, in, later on a week later, we go out again. And uh, we're at the club and, and we see the girl which, which came back with me. And I said, okay, guys, like, 
don't try and run into her you know don't don't say anything because i don't really you know i don't really want to go there again it's just a one-time thing so just do me a favor just leave it out you know and i have a pretty shit night so i go home early i'm a bit fed up with just being out for being out it's not really my thing so i just decided to leave and then i get a call from gavin who's the the bigger guy in the in the group and he says like oh i'm gonna go home with with uh your girl's friend and your girl's gonna come with me and i say gav please don't do that i do not want this to happen like i, I just want to be left be left with it. i want to go to bed not feeling that good and they come back and the girl comes into my room and I'm thinking, fuck, I just do not want to deal with this right now. I'm really not in the mood for this. I'm really grumpy. And I can he- hear her saying, <clears throat> I can hear her saying, oh, you know, he doesn't really, he, he's, not, he's not into it. He's asleep. And they all go, no, go on, go on. He, he wants it. He wants it. He'll, he'll love it. He'll love it. And then he, she's like, oh, I don't know. And then I end up getting woken up by, by one of them, Thomas. Hey, Mr. James, Mr. James, we've got you. Simbi here. Simbi's come here for you. And I'm like, fucking hell, guys. Uh, pretend like I've just woken up, even though I know that what's happening. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sorry. I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't really feel feel like I want to do anything. And I'm just feeling quite tired and ill. And, you know, everyone's kind of laughing in the next room. And then I go and I say to Gavin that this wasn't, this wasn't cool. I told you not to do this and you've kind of made an embarrassment out of her and out of me because I feel bad now that she's come all this way kind of expecting something which I was not willing to give. I didn't I didn't say that they could do that. I was pretty angry. Gavin, he's a he as I said they they all came from a rough side but Gavin was the biggest biggest of them and Gavin really looked after the others a lot of the time as well. I got the impression, you know, when there was a when there was a brawl, then Gavin would sometimes come and look after you know, Thomas, you'd have him on your side to back you up because he was a big guy, big guy, and he could lift a lot, you know. And I said that that wasn't, that wasn't okay, Gav. And then Gav got up in my face and he kind of pushed me against the back and then me and, me and him were really face-to-face looking at each other, getting quite fierce with each other, and the other boys were all stepping in. Hey, guys, guys, stop, stop, break it off, break it off, you know. And, um, yeah, that was kind of an unpleasant little episode. We did say, you know, we went past it. It was never that big, but there was always a little bit of tension after that. Always a bit of tension. As a few of the Irish boys went their different directions, only three others and Nathan remained. Earlier, in Vietnam, Nathan had fallen in love with a German girl from Berlin. Long, passionate phone conversations on the farm had become a comfort to him. And after his time in Perth, he was just about ready to chuck it all in and head back to Europe to go and see her. Only at the last minute, she told him not to. I was going to go with my friends, my best friends from the, from UK. And she rang me up and she said that she wasn't sure it was a good idea kind of a week before I was supposed to be flying because it would be hard if we went back to see each other for a week or two weeks. We'd rekindle that emotion and that feeling. And then we'd have to leave again because I knew that I was going to go traveling to Australia. And also she was starting to get some feelings for her ex-boyfriend, which I kind of got in the way of. So it just, it wasn't going to happen. And this is after months of continuing to speak to her. And I realized this just as Oshin was leaving. 
so all of my plans kind of just changed like this was what i was saving money to do that was the next bit of my plan and then i was like oh i don't have a plan so i ended up living with gavin and thomas for like another month and a half working in this job it was a shit job and i was working i was living with people and it was kind of uncomfortable because it, even though we smoothed things over and it's always good with thomas it was just more and more uncomfortable kind of to live with Gav and Thomas would kind of do more what Gav was going to do and kind of follow his lead because that's how they survived back in Dublin. And um, I was trying to make my own path. I didn't really have any outlets outside of work. So not just my work was shit, but my whole life just felt a bit shit, you know. It was around this time that Nathan was tempted to follow the crowd and head back home. In Perth, I was like, right. I've kind of messed up again. I'm, I don't think I've made many mistakes. Like, I, d I don't feel like that, but it could have been better. Okay, so this is when you move to Melbourne, right? I get to Melbourne in August, August of 2019. And I, get, I put myself into a hostel um, and I figure, okay, now from my experience in Sydney, from my experience in Perth, I know that I'm going to have to go to a hostel first. And I know that I'm probably not going to have a job for a while. But the first most important thing to do is just to make friends with some people. And the first day I got in, I think I flew in at maybe 3am or something like that. I went straight to the hostel. The hostel wouldn't let me check in until 2. So I stayed up all night talking to the receptionist until they opened the living room. And then I fell asleep in all of my clothes, including my coat just in the beanbag TV room. I kind of just fell asleep in there and was asleep for the most of the day. And then at, at two or three, when I could check into my room, I walk in. And as soon as I walk in, there's two English girls and, and, and a New York guy. And they're saying, oh, hey, how you doing? We're Maddie, Laura and Henry. If every great story contains heroes and villains, antagonists and allies, the Sunday Club were the allies in Nathan's story. And these allies, seemed to indicate a shift in Nathan's narrative. When he finally felt as though he couldn't go on, as though his trip was going to be filled with nothing but antagonists who would continue to test him, he was finally met with a crowd that were on his side, that marked the beginning of a chapter where he would finally start to see the results of all his hard work, of all the growth he'd experienced away from home. This is the Sunday Club. This is the Sunday Club. Yeah. So I go out to St. Kilda with Maddie, Laura and Henry and uh, we just get talking about, you know, where we're going to eat dinner. And I say, oh, well, haven't had a Sunday roast in a while. I don't know about you girls. But a Sunday roast reminds me of family, it reminds me of friends, you know. Everyone gets together and they just eat a nice meal and they chat and they don't have to think about anything in particularly hard. We went to this, went to this Irish pub called The Fifth Province and uh, we all ordered roast there and the roasts were really good, you know, and we just had a great time. We we're a bit drunk. It was a great atmosphere as Irish pubs usually are, you know, it had a live singer. So we, we were just joking and laughing and we started talking about this concept of the Sunday club, which was, you know, this roast was so good and we all loved roasts so much that we were going to come back and we we're going to have a roast in this place every single Sunday. And, um, you know, if you, when you have a new person that you bring to a roast, 
to be a member of this social club that we called the Sunday Club is that they had to get a boat of gravy and just down this boat of gravy by themselves where everyone else chanted gravy, gravy, gravy around them like a kind of cult thing. And uh, we wrote a, a semi-manifesto for this roast about how important all the vegetables are and how they, um, how they relate to certain attributes of your personality. And, um, you know, like a pea is determination and a carrot is forgiveness, something like that. And um, we'd co- we were going to come back every Sunday and ask new people questions like, if you cut yourself open, what would you bleed? And they have to say gravy or what's your favorite day of the week? And they have to say Sunday live by the gravy, die by the, and they have to say gravy, you know, it's just stupid stuff like that. Just being really silly, you know, but this is kind of the, this is just a small talk chat that I just really didn't, didn't connect with, I think, in the, in the rest of my trip. These days in a hostel, we had fun. We had no money. I really was flat out of money at this point. Um, I'd spent all of my money in Indonesia. I didn't want to ask my parents for any more money. I was just going, I was just using the overdraft in my English bank account at this point. I ended up having to take a job doing promotion for this bar outside. So I'd go and work a full day of labouring in the day. And then in the night time, I'd work promotion for a bar. It was tough, you know, and I was getting the labouring site that I initially was with. Again, I didn't have like full, full day's work with them, just like the fruit picking farms and... Um, and they weren't giving me the correct pay compared to other agencies. But I built from my time in the, in the farms and I built, I built from those experiences. And in these laboring jobs, I wasn't going to settle for this, for this laboring job. I was like, I got one job and it was like, okay, I've got my foot in the door now. I've got some experience. I know how to use the power tools as well from the factory. So when I go to my next place, I say, oh, okay, you know, I can use these power tools and I've, I can... You know, I've been laboring on this site and eventually I get a job with a slightly better labor agency. The work was still inconsistent. The job security still wasn't there. So there was still work to be done. But at least I kind of had a job now and it wasn't like the bartending or the factory. It was still pretty bad. I became really good at sweeping the floor, you know. They give you the shit jobs. And it's worse than actually just being a builder. Being a builder, again, it isn't, isn't hard to... Well, no, sorry, it is hard, but... Going and doing carpentry or something, at least it's fulfilling because you can see what you've made at the end of the day. But being a labourer is incredibly boring and that's the hardest part of the job for me is that it was boring. And then it was always my plan to leave the hostel as soon as we could. So I kind of led with the group, with the Sunday club, with Dylan from Leeds. Um, I led this group and said, okay, we're going to get out of this hostel. And, And we did. We left and we got an Airbnb and we just these were just stepping stones. So I got this other job, Airbnb. We were still poor as shit. We were still so poor that I could we could pay for an Airbnb a week in advance. But we really we were, you know, by the skin of our teeth. By the time we got to the next week, where we had to make the next Airbnb instalment, we couldn't book it out because we didn't have the money to book in advance. So we just had to book week by week and hope that nobody booked the place. But it was it was kind of tough. But at least I had a life outside of my work still though despite you know having an all right life and scraping by this wasn't enough for me and it was getting to the point where my visa was ending in australia i'd almost been here for a year now this was getting october time and it was only it was only ever my plan to stay in australia for a year i've tried and it's been really difficult 
and I know I think I've learned some stuff but but I was just ready to go home now I think it was really demoralized when I got into Melbourne for the first time but after building this base of friends and after starting off on this construction job I was like the ball's rolling now it's rolling in a good direction and and if I leave now then it just feels like I haven't done it quite justice I'm on something but I'm like okay no I want a long-term contract I want to live in a place that I can call home that I can go back to I'm not worried about going to one Airbnb to the next so me and Dylan we moved into our own flat um, we were both just working on the grind grinding hard so that he, we could get a bond together for a house and then pay the first month of installment which is what they usually ask for he was doing his roofing and I was doing this laboring I was working terrible jobs I worked down in Frankston. All of these places are like an hour and a half, two hours to get to in the morning. So I'd work these two hour commutes and then work this full day, just get in, be knackered, maybe go to the gym, eat dinner, go to bed, make a packed lunch. Next day, here we go. So when I was getting this new second year of my visa, I was thinking, okay, I'm getting this second year, but what is the reason why I'm getting this second year? Where, where am I going now? I've done Sydney, I've done Perth, I've done Western Australia. I don't particularly want to travel. The reason why I want to get this second year is I want to build a life for myself. I want to build a home for myself. And I wrote myself a checklist that was just get a laptop, get a house, get a better job. And finally, we'd been talking about it since we got there in August, but finally we got a house where we were really happy with it. It was quite expensive to live there, like a $1,200 a month, which was over a third of my wage so it was still it wasn't comfortable but we made it then the last thing on my to-do list was to get a job everything else had kind of worked out you know it was still hard at this point it was still hard but we were still definitely not comfortable we still I was still didn't, didn't have that much money for food at this point and to be honest with you I still was stealing a little bit to get food <laughs> it's kind of crazy now I look back on it but we were and but now I decided we'd move to a new house. The work in the construction sites really dries up over Christmas. And so we have the Christmas holiday and then I decide, right, that's it with the construction. I've been doing it for the last five months. And now I'm gonna get a job where, where I go into work and I kind of enjoy what I'm doing. This is the first time in January I ever think about what kind of career I want from uni. What these jobs in construction and the factory work in Perth made me realize was that you know, it gave me a thirst to have a, a job which I enjoyed. I realised everyone says it, you know, it's easy to say, get a job you enjoy, but most people don't. Most people just work to work. And that's what I was doing. And for the first time, I tried to find something which I enjoyed doing. Yeah, that was a bit of a shock as well, because that just did not happen straight away. As a visa immigrant, you can only work somewhere for six months. So despite having all of these qualifications, which was why I was naive that I was going to get work in the first place when I came to Australia. You know, I've got this degree, I've got all of these grades from school. Obviously, I'll just get a job, but that just didn't happen. You just don't get a job. Um, and I was applying for these positions. Nobody got back to me. Um, but at least on the plus side, I started thinking about it. I started reaching out to careers people at uni who pushed me in the right direction. I started writing my CVs and cover letters, which I'd never done before. Uh, kind of grossly late to do this i was 20 22 well 20 i turned 23 by this point so we move into the house mm. december the 23rd i've got my laptop which made it a lot easier 
to to find work because before then we'd have to go to the library i was like i'm gonna get a job something where i can use my brain where i'm not having to switch myself off when i go to work but i I can just do something and keep myself busy in my mind and then uh, surely someone can hire me i've got skills i've got administrative skills i've got drive i'm clever I'm I'm fucking I'm the perfect candidate. Why has nobody seen this before? <laughs> Why can nobody just accept what I know, what my mental Helen knows, what your mum and dad tell you that you're great? Why I am great. So can somebody please just recognise that? I go completely broke again, and I ended up having to go back to construction. But luckily this time I just I just get into one job, and it's a it's on a demo site again. I'm working really hard, but but finally I've got job security. We're working Monday to Saturday. We're working 6 a.m. until um, sometimes 5 p.m. or 3 p.m. And I was just caught between this balance of, is this, you know, there's got to be somewhere where you can have a job where you have energy and then you have energy for your life afterwards as well. That's really important. That's what I'm here for. I'm, I, I am kind of here to, to learn about things, but also I'm here to have a good time. And how can I have a good time if I'm just working for this money? It seemed like a catch-22. Like, how does anyone do it? I'm not sure. Um, but I guess people just do it because they do get on that grind and for some people that's you know that's enough for them for that job but it never really felt like it was enough for me so I was working this demo site long hours and then I had a break where I got into an administration role um, for a temporary office staffing agency. I was working reception and administrative assistance for people. This was like a dream, going in and sitting on a computer and doing a task which was kind of logic-based, which I could just bash out, you know, reorganise something on a on a system or greet people as they enter the building. Finally, I was doing something which was kind of enjoyable. Then coronavirus happens and I'm like, well, okay, back to square one again. But I knew, I knew now I had this foot in the door. There was something which I could do where I could do my day job and then I could come back. I still have energy to do my life and I was still paying the bills with money. So I'm like, okay, this is it. I can't go back to laboring now. I'm on something here. I'm applying for jobs like crazy during coronavirus and this one job gets back to me. It's saying that um, it's a job teaching Chinese kids English and uh, and... I didn't really believe them. I thought because my the email went to my phishing folder in my, my spam folder in my Gmail that it was just going to be uh, a Nigerian guy telling me that I had a big heritage in Nigeria and I just needed to give him his bank details and he sent me over $5 million. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it was real. And they, they had the interesting session. This was a real company. And I was like, okay, fine, teaching English. I've been tutoring English since um since actually the farm after a short time at this company nathan decided to show some initiative and took some actions that would lead him to the position he's in today one that he could finally be proud of um so it was it was moving a bit too fast for itself and it didn't have the management structure in there for to contain that that model after working in the in the factories in perth and after working on these labor sites i was not going to get let this get away from me and so that's why I kind of stepped up and I saw an opportunity. I saw that there were, I, I knew that things could be run better just because 
I, I was, you know, I had the intuition. I knew how things could be done. And one thing led to another. And now I'm the operation manager of this company. I'm, you know, I manage a team of 15 supervisors that those supervising team. And, and that's, I, that's where I met you. And that's where you met me, you know, cause Adrian, I do Adrian's work for him <laughs> <laughs> and I pick up the pieces when he slacks, but no, no, you know, having this job where I didn't think it was going to be anything. And then suddenly this job was really big for me because it was like all of the pieces are finally fitting together. Not only do I have a house, not only do I have friends, but I also have a job which, which I'm enjoying doing. It's stimulating. It's started me off on a career. So now I'm applying to do grad schemes in management consultancies because I've found parts of this job really enjoyable. What parts? Well, I've been thinking about those parts, the logic parts, the client relations parts, the management parts, you know, working out problems. And I found a, what career I'm going to do. And it's like, this is, this is, this is what I've been working for. This was the reason I stayed in Australia for another year because I knew from my experience in my first year, I knew that I'd messed up kind of, and I think I knew how to make a good life. And I did. I, I guess it's a pretty broad question, but what have you, what is this, what has all this taught you about yourself, this whole experience? Well, drawing back from my situation at home, I went on this trip and I didn't really know what, what it was to live. I've learned what the value of having, of having a home is. I learned how difficult that it was to keep and maintain a home in a nice living environment. I, I learned what the value of having a job which you enjoy is. My relationship with my parents is better than it's ever been now. And I realized that things aren't easy. Things just, things don't just come to you. Everything had always came, just came to me in my life. I never had to ask for anything. And I always had the brains just to wing it. So I never really had to work hard for anything, I don't think, even through uni and through school. Yes, I kind of worked hard for the grades, but I didn't really have to try that hard because I was just clever enough to wing it. It's difficult traveling. So could you have learned this stuff without, have gone, without going abroad? The reason why I think it's so important for people to go and live abroad is because it's fucking difficult to try and make a life for yourself somewhere. Especially when you, you know, you don't have experience in work, when you don't have any knowledge of how to get money, when you, when you don't know what you're trying to do with your life. It's really hard to, to, to think about how, how I'm going to make a nice life for yourself. But you're constantly asking yourself when you're, when you're going and living away somewhere, okay, what do I want now? What do I need now? And it's those kind of questions you don't ask yourself on a day-to-day -day basis if you've got a life which you're comfortable with. These are things which you need to learn, but you don't even know that you need to learn them until, until you're learning them. It's like riding a bike, but the bike is really shit. You're not going to know that you have a shit bike unless you've seen someone else's bike, which is nice, or unless you ride their bike, which is a far nicer bike than your bike, you know? You never know what you could find pleasurable in life, really, truly, what, where where can I make my life better until you decide to put yourself in a situation where you have to ask, what is it that I really need now? Everyone, life is so much. It could be anything 
that anyone wants to make it. And there's all sorts of lives out there. So why would you just have one life? Why would you just have, why would you just work in construction? Why would you just, I don't know, you know, be an actor like I was? Why would you just be corporate? And there's such a rich diversity of life out there that you're just not even aware of because you haven't challenged yourself enough to put yourself into the situations where you'll meet that kind of life. And that build, that's built me to be the man that I am. And now I look forward to going home and I am, I am different, definitely. I wouldn't say that I've changed just like my whole personality. My whole personality has changed. I'm still the person that I was, but I'm a better person than I was. I've learned compassion, I've learned dedication, and, and I've learned how to build something which is real, which I really enjoy, and I learned how hard it is to do that. And I don't think I was grateful before for what I did have. And now when I go back and I think of living with my dad and helping him, you know, helping us build a home, living with my brother and sister again and really, I'm really working on, okay, this is, this is where it is. Now what do we need to make this, to make this better? How can we grow from here? I don't think I would have had the maturity to ask myself those questions for a long time if I stayed in England. I didn't know that that was what the trip was going to be about. I had no idea. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to join us next time for another adventure on the Residence Podcast.